Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today, everybody. Just a note, our upstairs neighbor is doing something? We, we talked about this. He's building a flex capacitator. Right. He's, there's, he's, got, some, he's got a construction project going on. Or something. Or something. It's loud, it's noisy, it involves dropping what sounds like bowling balls on the floor. Uh, So we're going to try to edit him out of the show as much as possible, Uh, but if you do hear stuff... That's what that is. Yeah, exactly. We hope that this episode finds everybody safe and sound. Um, We know it's been a momentous... Couple of weeks. Yeah, um, and who knows what the future holds between the time... We recorded this episode, and the time this episode comes out. Yeah. Um, Obviously, things are the most riled up in the United States, but countries across the world are doing demonstrations, and we just hope that throughout all of that, you're all staying as safe as you can, and um, we hope that listening to the show provides a bit of a sense of normalcy for you. As been implied, so we record this episode like usually like a week ish before it's it goes up, like a about week, ten days. Ten days. So while things may have changed since we record this, some things stay the same, such as Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. um, Black Trans Lives Matter, sure, and stay safe both from COVID stuff and police brutality. Yeah, yeah. I think I I said on Twitter, um, but we do support Black Lives Matter, and we also support the ongoing fight against the police state. Yes. Um, Here in 1953, uh, where you and I are living currently, (laughs) um, things are are a little bit different. And they're especially different this week, because we are not in the United States for this week's episode. No, we are in Istanbul. Yes. Uh, For today's movie, Dracula Istanbulda, which just means Dracula in Istanbul. He's going on vacation. <laughs> it's like the genie at the end of Aladdin. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's the plot of Dracula. <laughs> so, obviously we are pretty familiar with Dracula here on the show, Sarah. Um, but do you want to walk us through kind of the major stops along the way in terms of uh, our Dracula coverage? Absolutely. Dracula is a novel first published in 1897 by Bram Stoker. Um, It's an epistolary novel, which was pretty common at the time, which just means that it's it's written as a collection of letters and diary entries and ship's logs and that sort of stuff. Like a found footage film, but in novel form. Yeah. And Dracula is also pretty well-known because of its ties to gothic literature and invasion literature. Mm-hmm. Invasion literature just being like, like, think War of the Worlds, you know, oh no, we're going to be invaded, blah, blah, blah. With Dracula, it's a case of continental Europeans, and specifically Eastern Europeans, invading the UK, mm-hmm. invading England. With that invasion theme, uh, Dracula is very much based around... Um, 
blood and race rather than sex appeal. Mm -hmm. Sex appeal comes later. Uh, Vampires aren't sexy yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you find the novel Dracula sexy, I mean, like, you do you, but, like, Stoker isn't specifically trying to make him sexy. Mm. The first adaptation that we saw was Nosferatu Mm -hmm. in 1922. Um, Now, That's episode 10, if you want to go take a listen back to that, where we go into a bit more detail about the background of that adaptation, because it's unauthorized and infringing of copyright. Yes. Um, Which is why it's called Nosferatu and not Dracula, and why all of the characters' names are changed. Yeah, they didn't get away with it, but they gave it the old college try. Yeah. Nosferatu is currently ranked at number 23. It was written by Henrik Galeen and directed by F.W. Murnau with Max Schreck as our uh, titular vampire. It also has no sex appeal. Yes. Um, I mean, if you find Nosferatu sexy, again, I'm not going to yuck your yum, but uh, that's not what they're going for. They're going more for a symbol of plague and death, of sickness coming across Europe, yes. specifically to Germany. Yeah. Yes. Our next adaptation was in 1931 with Dracula. And this is Bela Lugosi's Dracula, directed by Todd Browning and written by John Balderston. So this film is an adaptation of the novel by way of the 1924 Broadway play adaptation mm-hmm. of the novel. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's still there. It's second generation. Exactly. <laughs> um, now that Broadway play was the very first authorized adaptation of Dracula... Um, which I guess makes the film, like, the second authorized, if that I makes suppose, sense. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, the, the play had authorization from Stoker's Widow to adapt the novel, and the movie had authorization to adapt the play. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where the sex appeal comes in. Because, mm-hmm. um, Bela Lugosi plays Dracula, definitely as that European aristocrat, Um, Coming into Europe, you still have the invasion literature themes of the novel, but Lugosi brings a subtle sex appeal to his performance. Charm and charisma. Exactly, exactly. Now, that film, we covered it in episode 24, and it's currently ranked at number 16. And where was Nosferatu, sorry? 23. Okay. So seven spots below. Mm -hmm. Now, our third direct adaptation that we have. And I say direct because there's like, you know, rip-offs of Dracula and all that. Yeah, just go through the like episode titles of various episodes of the show and you'll be able to easily spot like movies that are not Dracula but are rip-offs of Dracula because we tend to title those episodes things like Egyptian Dracula or... Haitian Dracula. Right. Uh, in this case, we have Spanish Dracula. Mm-hmm. Which, um... As we explain in that episode, uh, number 25, if you're curious, in early sound film, they were still figuring out how to do translations of films. So from English into French or German or whatever. With silent films, it was easy. You just change the intertitles. With sound, not so easy. So there were cases, um, like in the film Vampire, that we also cover, they would film three versions of the film at the same time, One in English, one in French, one in German, or whatever language you're going to. In the case of Spanish Dracula, it was a whole different cast, and it even had some um, dialogue changes to keep it more in line with that culture that it's going to. 
so for Draculates, into Spanish, and it's going to Spain and Mexico. Yeah, I think primarily aimed at Mexico, because this is still the um, Universal Studios in America making this movie, you know, for Spanish-speaking audiences. Yeah. So it's from 1931, directed by George Melford, and it has Carlos Villarreal um, as our uh, Dracula character. Like I said, they, they change some things. The way they emphasize some things is a little different in the dialogue, so it has more of that Catholic and paternalistic overtone than what you would find in the uh, traditional Dracula movie. But I would argue that they pr- try to continue that sex appeal Yes. Uh, from Lugosi. Overall, Spanish Dracula is just regular Dracula, but more. Yeah, they really try to just do more. Yeah, they, it was shot at the same time, but like just after. So they would like look at what the American crew had done and then try to like one-up it, essentially. Yeah. So it's, it has this very like amped up kind of feeling. If you want to learn more about Spanish Dracula, that's episode 25. And it's ranked at... Number 101. Yes. So uh, that is a significant drop. Yes. Um, a lot of people consider Spanish Dracula better than the Lugosi version. And as you can see... We do not. Yes. I respect it, but it's not for me. Now, in all three cases of Nosferatu, Dracula, and Spanish Dracula, the story is simplified and shortened from what is in the novel. So the plot of the novel has um, a solicitor named Jonathan Harker traveling to Transylvania um, because of a count requesting his assistance to uh, move to England. On his way there, Jonathan encounters spooked villagers who are very superstitious and he laughs at them, heads to the castle and spooky things abound. The Count Dracula has uh, these mysterious wives that um, go to attack Harker at night. And uh, eventually, um, while Harker does help Dracula pack all of his things and ship out, Harker's left behind to be slowly consumed by the wives. Dracula is um, traveling across the sea and he lands in England. And um, that ship, no one survives the trip. Um, The ship comes in and everyone's dead and it's a very mysterious thing. Dracula is shipping boxes of the earth that he was buried in. So all they find are these caskets of dirt and they deliver that to a Carfax Abbey. So Harker escapes and um, he's found by by some nuns Mm -hmm. in Romania and he's slowly nursed back to health. Meanwhile, back in England, his fiancée Mina is um, a true top-notch Victorian lady, just very virtuous and very, like, what you want from a wife. Mm -hmm. And her friend, Lucy, is uh, a little more flirtatious. She has three bows on the go. If she was Swedish, you would think she was the end. (laughs) That's, um, That's quite the cinephile joke. Thank you. And also linguistic joke. And also linguistic joke, absolutely. Um, So she has three bows on the go. Um, Quincy, the American. um, Arthur, who I think owns the sanitarium. No. Um, So there's Arthur Holmwood, who is like a 
proper British gentleman. Right. There's Dr. Seward, who runs the right. sanitarium. Right. And there is Quincy Morris, who is an American cowboy from Texas. Yeah. But Dracula has come in, um, moving in near, I think, yeah, like next door to the sanitarium. And he's causing a stir in Victorian society because he still has that aristocrat, uh, because he still has that aristocrat attitude about him. Mm-hmm. There is an inmate at the asylum named Renfield, who um, starts to basically talk with Dracula. Uh, the people at the asylum think, oh, you know, Renfield's just doing his usual crazy, um, but he's becoming under Dracula's influence. So during this time, Lucy has been getting sick and sicker and sicker, and they can't really figure out why. And then she dies. As she was getting sicker, they called for help from a uh, Dr. Van Helsing, who arrives, and he's like, it's a vampire, guys. And this is further confirmed when, after Lucy has been buried, um, a mysterious woman, who seems to look like Lucy, is appearing in parks and killing children. So they go and confront Lucy in her casket, and turns out, yeah, she's a vampire. So they stake her, cut off her head, burn the body. What you're supposed to do with a vampire. Now, she was going to be Dracula's British wife. Mm-hmm. Her, his first British wife. As people have been tracking down Lucy, Dracula is now getting buddy-buddy with Mina. And this is about where the novel continues and the film adaptations end. Um, yeah. The film adaptations all kind of end either, in the case of Nosferatu the Mina character sacrificing herself in order to keep Nosferatu out after light. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he gets killed by the dawn, but she dies in the process. In Dracula and Spanish Dracula, Mina is kidnapped, and under Dracula's thall, um, our heroes go to Carfax Abbey, find her, destroy Dracula, uh, just as the sun is coming up, and everyone's saved. Mm Mm-hmm. In the novel, um, Mina does come under his thrall, but Dracula sees that the walls are closing in because um, he's hidden caskets of his burial dirt around London just to, like, help him get around. And Van Helsing and the team have been slowly, like, finding them and making it so that Dracula can't use them anymore. So with his final casket, he heads back to Transylvania, tail between his legs. Mm -hmm. But that's not enough for Van Helsing and the gang um, they decide to chase after Dracula across the sea and uh, on a train. Now, Mina has been under his influence, so they're using her to kind of track like where Dracula is on the map, and she's being kept away from their plans so as to not divulge them to Dracula. Yeah, and they meet up again with Harker, and she and Harker get married yep. along the way here. Yeah, and eventually... They track down Dracula, um, they kill the people who have been transporting him, and um, they have like an epic battle with him. Um, Quincy stabs him with his bowie knife because he's a, an American, but he, he gets killed in the process, um, and they do defeat Dracula. However, Quincy has died, and there's been some trauma along the way. Now, all of this is being told in an epistolary format, like I said. So the novel ends with Harker saying, like, and that's the story of what happened. And they have a son. Uh, Harker and Mina have a son uh, who is named after each person in their gang. But Mm -hmm. they call him Quincy for short. Um, And it's like, hey, 
All, all's well that ends well. You were named after the most brave people I know. My, like, three buddies who helped me kill a vampire to save your mom. See, that's dope. See, that's dope. Yeah. Yeah. That's the novel. Mm-hmm. That's the adaptations we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. But is it the novel, Sarah? Yeah, so today's film, Dracula in Istanbul, is adapted from a novel called Kazikli Voivoda, which roughly translates to The Impaling Duke. Yes, roughly. Um, roughly. Voivod is a, a hard title to, like, accurately translate into uh, English. Like, I think, you know, like, Stoker translates it as Count, right? That's where you get Count Dracula. Um, Duke is, like, a reasonable translation. Um, Prince is a reasonable translation, too, but it gets confusing in English because especially Americans think of Prince as, like, the king's son. But this is Prince in a more, like, European sense of, like, Ruler of a principality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Regardless, it's what Vlad the Impaler was. Yes. Um, but you hit the nail on the head, Ben. It is a mix of Bram Stoker's Dracula and, uh, hey, remember Vlad the Impaler from history? <laughs> he, that That's going to be him. That's going to be him as the, the vampire in this novel. Yeah. Stoker took the name Dracula from... Uh, Vlad Zepish, uh, who was at the time called Vlad Dracula, uh, which just means son of Dracul because his father was Vlad Dracul. And the novel kind of like implies that Dracula is Vlad the Impaler, but it doesn't like do a lot of work to like outright say that or mm -hmm. outright link it to any of the history because nobody in England would give a shit. Yeah. Um, here's who would give a shit. <laughs> uh, Ali Riza Sefi. So this guy is the author of the novel I'm talking about today, Kazikli Voivoda, uh, which was published in 1928. So Sefi, his pen name was Ali Riza. He was born in Constantinople in the Ottoman Empire. So mm -hmm. capital of the Ottoman Empire in 1879. And he died in 1958 in Istanbul, Turkey. Which is the same place. Yep. So I will be going into that. But it also means that he would have been alive for this movie. Yes. So, Seifi, to give you an idea of what our author is like, he was a naval officer in the Naval Science Commission in Tripoli when he was around 13 years old. By the time he was 27, he was working at the Naval Department Translation Office. So this would have been around 1906. In 1909... A lot of things happened in the Ottoman Empire. Um, also in 1909, Seyfi left the naval service. There's not a lot known about Seyfi, and what I could find I think was probably translated not the best, because some people said that he left the naval service as a captain, and some say he left as a lieutenant. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how ranking works, um, unless it's ranking horror movies. <laughs> so... Um, one or the other. And the reason why 1909 was a bit of a tumultuous time, and the years after that as well, is it was the beginning of the fall of the Ottoman Empire. We've talked about this a little bit with the history in um, our episode on the Black Cat mm, from 1934. Sure. Um, but that's more in like the Austro-Hungarian area. Um, for the Ottoman Empire... 
The first bit of writing on the wall was uh, the Italo-Turkish War in 1911 to 1912, and then the Balkan Wars, 1912 to 1913. There were multiple coups and counter-coups, lots of things going on, and then, of course, you had World War I, 1914 to 1918. The Ottoman Empire, like many European powers, participated in World War I, and it didn't go well for them. Yeah, they were on the, what was it called, the Triple Entente side? Like, they were against the Allies. Yeah. So that kind of explains it didn't go well for them. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, in 1918, their capital, Constantinople, was occupied by the French, British, and Italian forces. Now, that occupation continued until 1923, uh, ending with the Treaty of Lausanne. But during those five years was a civil war. It's uh, the Turkish War of Independence um, expelling the Sultan Mehmed VI uh, out of Turkey, I guess we can call it. Um, during this time, there was a government in established in a city known as Ankara, the second largest city, um, next to Constantinople. Turkey was officially liberated, and uh, the occupation lifted and everything, um, October 6th, 1923, which is still celebrated as Liberation Day. That's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. um, during all of this, Ali Riza and his family moved from Constantinople to Ankara, and he worked as an English translator for the press department. Yeah. He returned to Istanbul in 1926 as head of the Shipping Chamber of Commerce branch. Throughout his life, and especially during this time, he would write poetry and articles that would be published in newspapers. He wrote several novels, including this one about Dracula. Um, these are all fiction, and he mainly wrote history books on Turkish history, history of the Ottoman Empire, its relations to Hungary, to Russia, mm -hmm. um, especially on the War of Independence, just um, very steeped in history. And so that would make sense you know, him bringing more of the historical Vlad into Dracula. Absolutely. So let me know if this, like, lines up with your research, but to the best of my knowledge, like, Constantinople is the Greek name for the city, and Istanbul kind of, like, is derived from that as kind of like a Turkish nickname of the city. And I think, like, the name existed before the fall of the Ottoman Empire, but kind of became the official international name of the city with the switch to Turkey. I don't know where the name Istanbul comes from, but in 1926, that's when the name was changed from Constantinople to Istanbul, and the capital city was changed from Constantinople to Ankara. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people point to the fact that Constantinople had just a ton of Ottoman as well as international associations yeah. um, as being the reason for this change. Yeah, I mean, it was... You know, they're trying to establish their independence. It's like with the French Revolution wanting to even create, like, a whole new calendar, you know? Yeah. Like, they're really trying to create um, their Turkish identity. Yeah, because before it was the capital of the Ottoman Empire, Constantinople had been the capital of the Byzantine Empire for hundreds of years. Yeah. So they're like, you know what? It's time for a change. Sure. <laughs> so we're now post-occupation, post-Civil War, 
Um, we have a new capital city of Ankara. Turkey is now a republic. It has a whole new flag. Um, fun fact, the uh, Turkish flag is red to symbolize the blood of the Turkish people lost during the Civil War. Huh. Five years after all of this, the novel The Impaling Duke comes out. As I said before, the Turks are trying to establish their identity. Mm-hmm. And Seyfi, who is steeped in history and is part of that independence movement, decides to write this novel that is both an adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, but also almost like a nationalist interpretation for Turkey. Yeah, because, like, I mean, he was doing English translation work, and this is, you see this um, being cited as the Turkish translation of Dracula. Like, instead of doing, like, a straight translation, he, like, goes and, like, rewrites it, basically. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I can totally get why that is, because, you know, especially with the historical stuff, because even if, like here in, you know, America, we would have never cared about Vlad the Impaler if it wasn't for the fact that Stoker turned him into Dracula. Like, in Turkey, like, like Vlad's whole deal was that he fought the Turks, sometimes worked with the Turks, sometimes fought the Turks as kind of this, like, buffer state between Turkey and Hungary, right? So, like, he's all wrapped up in the whole history of that region. Absolutely. Uh, wrapped up as a villain. In Turkey. In Turkey. A hero so, in Romania. Absolutely. Yeah, so let me tell you a little bit about the historical figure of Vlad the Impaler. Mm-hmm. Vlad Zepesh. Or Vlad the Third, if you want. Many names, same guy. Vlad Dracula, also accurate. So he was a Volvode, um, which I've translated as Duke of the Wallachia region in Romania. Mm-hmm. And he lived around 1428 to 1477. Mm -hmm. Those dates are, you know, give or take a year. Yeah. He had many conflicts with the Ottoman Empire throughout the 15th century. And the reason he's seen as a villain by the Turks is because Vlad was cruel and ruthless on the battlefield. Yeah, he's not called, like, the Impaler for, like, metaphorical reasons. Yeah. Yeah. He would take live soldiers and impale them on sticks and put them out into the battlefield to demoralize the uh, enemy. This is one story where he has a big cauldron and puts a ton of people in there and pours boiling water over them. Whew. It's it's Game of Thrones up in here, yeah. basically. I mean, and these these impalements, like we're talking like forests of impaled people, like not like three guys in front of the army, but like oh, in order to get into my territory, you're gonna have to march through like a, a glen of of your impaled ex soldiers. To be fair, um, a lot of stories were generated about Vlad that were generated by his enemies, and a lot of stuff about him got exaggerated over the years. Uh, Hence how he ended up being a vampire, right? Like, hence, you know? (laughs) But um, it doesn't mean that he was not, like, a brutal, brutal dude. 
Yeah. The other thing that, like, might not be clear if you aren't super familiar with this part of the world, but, like, Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, um, was and is Muslim. And Vlad in Wallachia, as I said, was like a buffer state to Hungary. And that was all Orthodox Christian. So this conflict was a, like, nationalistic conflict of, like, oh, we have to prevent the Ottomans from taking over. But it also was a religious conflict of we have to prevent the Muslims from taking over, which is why, you know, you can have these super disparate views of Vlad, depending on what side of the conflict you were on, because he's either, like, the defender of Christianity, or he's, like, this horrible monster. The scourge of Islam? Yeah, exactly. A little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And as Ben alluded to before, Vlad has been taken up as a uh, an icon in Romania. He's become a bit of a national hero um, to signify an independent Romania. Um, that interpretation of him happened throughout the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Now, um, as we've kind of explained loosely, we have several lines of um, Christian versus Muslim uh, divisions here. We have Romanian versus Turkish divisions here. Um, so you can kind of see why this piece of invasion literature is well adapted to become a piece of nationalist literature in a new republic of, mm-hmm. of Turkey. Yeah. One thing I'll just note right here is that in Safi's book, um, the term vampire is not used. Yes. Um, he uses the term hortlock. Yes. Which, uh, you know, could, like, directly translate into fearsome ghost. Basically, it describes a kind of creature that rises from the grave with a troubled soul, um, has magical properties, can transform into animals, be invisible. Um, so you can kind of see the the similarities to vampirism. Yes. But there's also an understanding of this creature as being a mindless, reanimated corpse, hungry for human flesh. Yeah, so closer to, like, a ghoul. Yeah, a ghoul, zombie type of thing, versus a vampire. But we've seen this kind of, like, mishmash mm-hmm. of terminology in vampire films past. Sure, I mean, even the, the word Nosferatu is, like, a German transliteration of the Romanian word nesufritu, which kind of more accurately translates into, like, an incubus or a succubus rather than a vampire, but, like, is related to vampires for reasons, and, like, <laughs> it's it's all really blurred up together. Yeah. As far as the plot of the novel goes, my understanding is that it hits pretty much the same beats as the novel. There are some changes. Everyone is Turkish. Yeah, he goes to Istanbul instead of, like, London. Yeah, so he's heading to Istanbul. Everyone is Turkish. Um, It's set in 1920s Turkey rather than, like, 1800s London. Mm -hmm. And everyone is Muslim, Mm -hmm. except for Dracula. Yeah. (laughs) If they're all Turkish, that follows. Yeah. Um... And then in some cases, some things are just switched out. So rather than um, Harker trying to protect himself with a cross or a crucifix, uh, they use the Quran. Sure. Now, that isn't to say that they completely replace things, 
For example, our Harker character, who is named Asmi, the villagers in Transylvania try to give him a cross, and he's like, oh, no, I, I got my crew on. It's cool, yeah. I'm, I'm good. No, it's fine. Um, and they're like, oh, okay, well, that should work just as well. <laughs> and then our Van Helsing stand-in named Dr. Rasui, he uh, says something along the lines of, like, you know, any kind of religious item mm. will protect you, whether that's a crucifix or a Quran. But everyone here is using the Quran. Yeah. There is no Renfield in this adaptation. Um, Dracula never meets our Mina stand-in, whose name is Guzan. And the other thing that I think is pretty important to acknowledge is that it's not just a narrator saying, like, hey, Count Dracula is Vlad the Impaler. But it is a consistent thing noted throughout the novel by all of the characters, as well as a recalling of the violence done to the Turks Mm -hmm. by Vlad. Um, And when they are attacking Dracula, um, they uh, are are heroes who, by the way, are veterans of the Turkish War of Independence, Mm -hmm. um, explicitly say, like, take this for hurting our brothers in arms and, like, uh, protect Turkish blood and and things like that. Right. I wasn't able to find the novel as a primary source. Mm-hmm. I was able to find people, like academics, talking about it. Um, and a lot of them, you know, further explained this nationalist theme in uh, the novel. And one person even talked about how Sir Bram Stoker's Dracula talked about blood and race and invasion literature of, like, this European guy coming in and he's going to muddy your pure blood. Mm -hmm. In the case of Safi's novel, um, it's about Dracula coming in and taking Turkish blood. Yeah. Which is why I brought up that even, like, the flag of Turkey Mm -hmm. has red to symbolize the blood. So blood is, like, a huge theme and metaphor in here. Right. It makes sense that, like, if you were translating Dracula to Turkish, if that was your job, that you would maybe think that, oh, no, 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 we have to, like, kind of rewrite this a little, just because of the fact that you are so much closer historically to this guy. I don't know if Ali Riza Seyfi was specifically hired to do this adaptation. Um, as far as I know, it was probably unauthorized. Yeah, my research suggests that this was like a bootleg novel. Yes. And he doesn't say an adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. He claims full authorial credit, which I, I can understand like why he might do that, because he's changed the context around it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still Stoker's story. Yes, but I, I, I guess I just wanted to point out he's not trying to, like faithfully adapt the story. Yeah. He is doing what a lot of academics like to call like a transcultural adaptation of like updating it to the current day, to our current context, especially like with what's happened in Turkey within the last five years contemporarily. Like, yeah. It's it's more similar to like, you know, rather than okay, I'm going to watch King Lear dubbed in Japanese, instead I'm going to watch Ron, right? Like, the way that Kurosawa in Japan, like, 
Ron is his King Lear, Throne of Blood is his Macbeth, but they aren't, like, translations of those stories. They are, you know, transformations of them into a Japanese context. Yeah. Yeah, I think one thing that maybe Safey had, like, in his favor here is that apparently the key to not getting sued by Bram Stoker's widow is, you know, living in, like, the Arab part of the world and, like, far away from any European ever noticing what the fuck you're doing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because, like, Stoker's estate, if they had known, probably would have been like, hey, man, what the fuck? But also it's, like, post-World War One. Turkey itself is still, like, getting its stuff together. Um, yeah, the, the Stoker estate would not have been paying attention to, like, anything coming out of Turkey. Yeah. Oh, and the last thing I'll mention is that this is, because of this historical context and everything around the film, um, that means that the Impaling Duke novel is the first piece of media to be, like, no, Count Dracula is Vlad the Impaler. I make that explicit. Yeah, because it's it's an implied thing in Stoker's version, but for Stoker it was more about, like... Flavor. Flavor. It was finding, like, a source, basically, for his Count's backstory, and then just kind of, like, using it. Yeah. Um, he is definitely Vlad Zepish because Dracula was Vlad's name. But, uh, yeah, this is definitely the first thing to actually reincorporate that history back in, which then becomes, like, a trendy thing to do in future adaptations. So I'm glad that you gave, like, a lot of historical context and background to, like, Turkey and the novel and Vlad and all of that stuff. I will say that is just, like, the... Oh, so skimming the surface. Yeah, because, like... We're not here for this. Yeah, like... You hear, like, the word Byzantine Empire. Like, that goes back, like, into, like, the 12th century, 11th century. Nah, nah, like, even the, like, earlier. Like, way it's, earlier. It's, woof, woof. And I, I barely scratched that. Yeah. Nowadays in Turkey, it is considered to be, like, politically incorrect to refer to Istanbul as Constantinople, um, even when talking about during the Ottoman era. Like, oh. the, the current politically correct thing to do is to call it Constantinople when it was under control of the um, Byzantine Empire and before, and Istanbul once it was conquered by the Ottoman Empire. Nowadays, you're sort of supposed to call it Istanbul when referring to that period on, but during that period, it was still Constantinople, at least to Westerners. The name Istanbul, I guess, comes from the phrase to the city. Oh, no. Um, Is just like, it's like, what the locals would refer to it as. Um, and that sort of just became the name of the city in the local area and was just like what people who lived there and lived around there called it. Um, and then it became like the official name of the city when the Turkish Republic was formed. Yeah. I was using Constantinople to try to differentiate like the switchover mm-hmm. that happened in his lifetime. And you're, but you're... I apologize if I... Um, upset anyone because of that. Yeah, you're technically correct, though, because the official name change was at that time. Yeah, but still, I don't want to offend. So, this is our first Turkish film. Yeah. So, you know, the first question to kind of answer is, like, what does film in Turkey look like, right? So, the cinema of Turkey is called Yeşilçam, which means the green pine, 
And it's kind of like just the equivalent of saying Hollywood. You say Yeshicham. Uh, okay. it's, it's, Yeshicham is a street in Istanbul that housed a lot of the studios and directors and actors and so on in the golden age of Turkish film. Okay, cool. So the first film shown in Turkey in 1896 was the famous, like, Arrival of a Train film. Sure, yeah. Um, and, you know, movies started coming into Turkey and being shown in Turkey. There were these film import companies that would import in foreign films. Uh, those import companies then had theater chains that they owned so that they could show these films that they were importing in. Uh, and so you had this popularity of foreign films. The first film to be actually made in Turkey was a documentary in 1914. And this was followed by the first narrative films in 1917. In general, however, the film market was dominated by imported product. Um, very few local films were produced, and even fewer were actually, like, shown in any kind of, like, wide release, right? Rather than just like, oh yeah, we rented a theater here downtown to show it one time or whatever, right? Like a hobby kind of film. Yeah, or, or just like, you know, you can think of it as being equivalent to Canadian film in many ways, and like... <laughs> How many times is a Canadian film actually showing at a Canadian theater outside of, like, a festival or, like, oh, at the Globe for a weekend or whatever, right? Yeah. Less than 50 Turkish films were made before the end of the Second World War. Like, from the time they started making film, their own films to 1945, less than 50 Turkish films were made. Wow. Uh, so, you know, very, very anemic film industry. Um, mostly foreign films coming in. Now, Turkey was neutral during the Second World War. Um, they were courted by both the Allies and the Axis, and they kind of just tried to, like, keep their distance um, and and not favor anybody. Um, well, a lot of things happened after the First World War for them, so mm. I can understand them being a little more tepid. Yeah, so they played both sides a little bit, in, at least in terms of, like, who they pretended to be friends with, um, until, like, February of 1945. Now, the British did have this sense that, like, well, but you should be on our side, because they had a treaty with the Turks that meant that, like, Britain had trained most of their military and, like, provided them with most of their military materiel. Um, but Germany was also, like, an important trade partner for Turkey. So it wasn't until February of '45. The Turkey was like, yep, we're on the Allies' side, and declared war on Germany, which is sort of like, you know... Uh, it's the last quarter in the football game. Yeah, and you're like, I'm going to bet on the winning team, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, in the end of the day, despite declaring war, no Turkish combat units saw actual combat. So the Second World War didn't really impact Turkey as much as other places. But after the Second World War, there was this um, great sort of resurgence of Turkish theater. And that led to greater strides in Turkish cinema, as more and more films were made adapting popular plays. Uh, and then that sort of snowballed into, you know, original films and, and this kind of thing. Uh, in 1939, there had been only two film companies in Turkey, uh, but by 1950, there were four. So this post-war period was like a period of rapid expansion. 
as the level of talent participating in the films increased, so did the popularity of these films and their ability to compete with foreign product and therefore the desire of people to invest in them, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah, definitely snowballing. 49 Turkish films were released in 1952, which was more than in all the previous years combined. Yeah. So here we are in 1953, kind of at this moment when Turkish film is exploding. Um, Eventually it would reach a peak of something like 350 films a year and be like a very big film industry in that part of the world. That's great. So Dracula Istanbulda was produced by End Film by Turgut Demireg, who was a 32-year-old filmmaker who had produced 13 films before this one, beginning in 1947. Yeah, busy guy. He had also directed five films and written four, including this one. He would go on to write and direct a total of 19 films and produce 63 before his death in 1987. His writing partners for this picture were Umit Dennis and Mehmet Mutar. Uh, This was Dennis's first screenplay after acting in two prior films. Mutar had worked on two previous screenplays, uh, and he also directed Dracula Istanbulda. It's it's kind of cool how like the way that they are just bouncing between different roles mm-hmm. and like you know filling in on the director's chair while also acting and producing and all of this. It reminds me of the early silent film yeah. era in Hollywood. Yeah, it's very much that like early days kind of feeling. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, so yeah, so Mehmet Mutar directs this film. It was his sixth film since his career began in 1950. Starring as Dracula is 45-year-old actor Atif Captain. Uh, Captain had been acting on stage since the 1920s and began his film career in earnest in 1946. Dracula was his 26th film in a career that nearly reached 350 films by his death in 1977. Wow. The Mina-equivalent character, Guzan, is played by actress Annie Ball. Now, Annie wasn't Turkish, and this was her first film. So, her performance is dubbed. Yeah. If she's not Turkish, do you know where she comes from? I don't. I couldn't find any information about her other than her name is Annie Ball. She was in these, like six or seven Turkish films in the 1950s, and she didn't really speak a lot of Turkish. Okay. So just like the book, the connection between Vlad and Dracula is made explicit in this film, uh, making it the first time a film adaptation of Dracula mentions Vlad the Impaler. Uh, It's also the first film adaptation to give Dracula visible canine fangs. I think they retract, too, in the film. In the film? Yeah, I heard that they, like can be seen retracting and coming back. Oh, out. cool. Well, well, we'll have to see. Yeah. Um, yeah, Bela Lugosi didn't have fangs in his Dracula film. None of the Dracula sequels at Universal had fangs. And... Nosferatu um, had, like, uh, like, rodent teeth? Yeah, like these rodent, like, buck teeth. But, like, yeah, that's but not... the canine, like, what we think of... Even today, as vampiric fangs. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't have the teeth that, like, if you go into a Halloween store and ask for a pair of vampire fangs, like, they're not going to hand you Nosferatu teeth. Yeah. 
this is the first Turkish horror film, as kind of evidenced by, well, it being the first Turkish film we're seeing. <laughs> it was shot over 49 days. And according to legend, the production could not afford a fog machine. And so for the fog scenes in this movie, like at the cemetery, they just had 30 stagehands standing just off camera smoking cigarettes. Now that's chain smoking. Yeah. Oof. They must have all had really bad stomach aches and headaches. The film was released on March 4th, 1953 in Turkey. And to the best of my knowledge, it never saw a release in any foreign countries. Uh, today, our copy, with English subtitles, comes courtesy of the Internet Archive. It was found for us and sent to us by our listener, Nicholas Harold. So thank you, Nicholas. Thanks, Nick. Um, and if you don't know the Internet Archive, it is an invaluable research database. Uh, just tons of, like, you know, public domain literature and, you know... Film. Film, research materials, everything. Um, it's totally free. It's also the home of the Wayback Machine. So, like, it's the only way that you can see, like, non-existent web pages. And so for that reason, it's really, like, integral to, like, internet history efforts. It's it's really an integral part, you know, those parts of the internet that are still dedicated to the original purpose of the internet, which is, like, the free and open sharing of information. Um, it's also under assault via lawsuit from some uh, big-name publishers oh. who want to shut it down. Uh, Random House is among them. Penguin is among them. Uh, because there are public domain books available for free on the Internet Archive. That's, like, potentially cutting into the revenue of, like, Penguin and Random House who, like, have their classic book lines and stuff. So, like, they're trying to get it shut down under, like, some a, a copyright lawsuit. And if the Internet Archive goes down, that's a huge, massive... That's, like, Library of Alexandria-level loss of information online. Um, the way you can support the Internet Archive is through donations, and that helps them to do things like pay for a legal defense team and things like that. I understand that, like, there's a lot of causes right now asking for your money. Yeah, there's and, a lot. you know, so I'm not saying that this is, like, the most important one out there... I'm just bringing it to your attention if you weren't previously aware of it. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Great. So that's how we're watching this movie today. Yeah. Uh, that's how you listeners can watch the movie with us as well. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Dracula in Istanbul from 1953, directed by Mehmet Mutar. See you on the other side, everybody. scream scene we just finished watching dracula istanbul the dracula in istanbul uh directed by mehmet mutar from 1953 ben what did you think i had a fun time with this yeah i was really excited for this movie mm -hmm. especially after doing research about the book 
I have to say that the movie kind of let me down a little bit because it wasn't what I wanted. Mm. But it still did deliver Dracula in Istanbul, so I can't really be too mad at it. Yeah. I think my big takeaway from this is it's kind of nuts that this is our most faithful adaptation of Dracula so far. Yeah. (laughs) Which is kind of fun. There are a few very noticeable differences. Like any adaptation, you take some authorial liberties. Yep. Yeah. Um, Such as the following. Hmm. Before I dive in, let me just... uh, Give a list of the name of characters and say who the novel counterpart is. Okay. So we have Dracula, who is Dracula. Right. Guzin, who is Mina. Ozmi, who is Jonathan Harker. Mm-hmm. Turan, who is Arthur. Shadan, who is Lucy. Dr. Nuri, who is Van Helsing. And Dr. Akif, Dr. Seward. Mm-hmm. As we said, it's pretty faithful to the novel, and I also gave a quick outline of what that plotline is in the context setting. So I'm basically just going to skim over things, but emphasize where it goes a little different. Right. So Asmi is traveling to Transylvania and uh, makes his way to the castle. Uh, They drive up in a car Mm -hmm. instead of a horse and carriage. But the local villagers seem to be very spooked because apparently it's the 14th day of the month. And everyone knows that the night of the 14th day of the month is when all hell breaks loose and you need to protect yourself. Yeah. Luckily, um, Azmi doesn't need the crucifix that the uh, innkeeper offers him because he has an amulet, uh, which uh, can be called a tawiz or... Muska, for the Turkish word, which is just like an Islamic amulet, basically. It contains, um, like, verses from the Quran and stuff, like, on little bits of paper um, contained within, which makes it um, very similar to, um, like, a Jewish thing, where they wear it as, like, a box on their head. Um, The general term for this in, like, religion is a phylactery. But there's, like, a specific Jewish word, and then there's the specific, like, Arabic word, specific Turkish word, etc. Yeah. But he's like, don't worry, villager. I'm safe. Mm-hmm. He makes it to the castle, and he goes exploring. Um, he meets Count Dracula, who says, yes, my ancestor is Vlad the Impaler. You might have heard of him. Right. Also at the castle is a hunchbacked servant, whose name I don't think we ever get. I don't remember him having a name. He's, like, the closest we get to, like, a Renfield figure in here, but he's really more, like, Fritz or Igor. He's Rengor. Right. <laughs> he He's new. There's Dracula doesn't have servants in the book. I have no idea what this guy's deal is. <laughs> but Osme makes friends with this servant, um, mainly by showing, like, some kind of compassion to him. Yeah, bare minimum human decency. Yeah, he gives the servant um, his, like, silver cigarette case, for example. With cigarettes inside. And the servant warns him that if you start to feel tired outside your room, better make it back to your room. Don't fall asleep anywhere else, or else you'll have nightmares. Yeah. (laughs) Osme, like all Jonathan Harkers, is a little dumb. Mm -hmm. So he 
continues to explore the castle, and he finds his way down into kind of a storage room crypt. He starts to fall asleep, um, thanks to what looks to be like gas coming out of a portrait's two eyes. And that's when a singular wife attacks. The bride of Dracula. <laughs> singular. Um, and as usual, Dracula calls her off. Um, apparently, uh, this movie shows Dracula giving the wife a baby. We don't see that, really. Well, she go. He's like, your food's over there. And she goes and picks up, and we don't really see what she picks up. He comes in with a bundle mm -hmm. and, like, sets it down. But in all the parts of this movie where they're trying to, like, represent someone holding a baby, it's just like they've taken, like, a tea towel and, like, wrapped it into, like, a roll. And then they're just holding that roll as if it was a baby in swaddling clothes. But there's nothing there. Um, but that's what he has. So. Yeah. So, um, that's, uh, one strike in this movie's favor, mm -hmm. um, against past versions. Yeah, this has baby eating. Yeah. Atif Captain, who plays Dracula, is, like, balding. He has sort of, like, the Patrick Stewart look in terms of his hair. Um, he also has, like, Vulcan-ass eyebrows. Yeah. Which I guess means he looks like comics Professor Xavier, um, <laughs> no, to me, he had a little bit of a Conrad Veidt look to him. Sure, like older Conrad Veidt when he's like lo losing his hair and he has that high domed head. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Um, he has the fangs, but they only come out when like... He smells blood? Yeah, when he's when he's hungry. Um, and they <laughs> are pretty dopey looking. Yes, but it's fun. He, uh, he's mainly in, like, a tuxedo for most mm -hmm. of the movie, and he has a fancy cape that I think it looks like it's, like, lined with, um, almost like a silvery type of material mm -hmm. inside, and the movie explicitly states that it's due to this cape that Dracula is able to change forms. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that weird thing that you think when you're a kid, that, like, the reason Superman can fly is his cape. I never thought that. Apparently, like, it's a really common thing. Oh. Yeah. Huh. Anyways, um, Asmi wakes up, and, um, Dracula takes him back to his room. Yeah. And that's when Dracula is like, okay, it's time. I'm, I'm hungry. Mm -hmm. Or, hungry, as Ben put it. And the hunchback servant comes in, and he's like, no! And throws his protective garlic necklace onto Asmi. So Dracula attacks the servant instead. Right. Uh, Asmi wakes up and he's like, the fuck is going on? Luckily, he's saved because the sun comes up. And so Dracula runs back to his coffin. Asmi follows, running after Dracula, and finds Dracula in his coffin and takes out a gun and pop, pop, pop. Yeah, just fucking riddles him. Yeah, riddles takes him. a shovel to his face. Yeah. Um, and he's, like, laughing maniacally, like, ha-ha, take that, you devil. That servant didn't make it out alive of no. that previous encounter, if that wasn't clear. Yeah. We do see that all on screen. Yeah. Which is pretty dope. Yeah. One of my favorite bits here of Osmi in the Castle is that, like, Dracula's been reading books in Turkish in order to, like, learn the language. Yes. Um, which is, you know, in, in the novel, Dracula's been reading books in English to learn that language, so that makes sense. And Osmi, like, is going through the books he has, and one of my favorite books has a 
um, triumphant reappearance, which is the Book of Vampire lore that all vampire <laughs> movies protagonists discover, except for in, like, the Bela Lugosi Dracula, uh, you know, with its handy outlining of, like, exactly how vampires work. But this time, the pages that tell you how to kill them have been torn out by Dracula, which is a smart move, because I was wondering why the hell he even has this book lying around <laughs> in his house. Meanwhile... Back in Istanbul, Guzin, uh, who, to remind you, is Mina, she's a belly dancer. Yeah, in like a, a cabaret nightclub. Yeah. And we get to see entire front-to-back belly dancing routines, and, you know, like a real belly dancer, but not like you might be used to from Hollywood, her outfit shows her belly button, which, like... We haven't seen one of those in a while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very skimpy for 1953 standards. Now, Guzin, um, she's happy working in the theater, um, but she heads to the country because her friend Shadan is ill, and Shadan's mother has written to Guzin asking her to come. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure. It, it, the The subtitles that we had were okay, um, so I, I think... Shadan is Guzan's cousin, and that Shadan's mother is Guzan's aunt, but it might have just been, like, you know, the way you might call a good friend that. Yeah, my understanding from other things I've read um, set in Arabic areas, like mm. um, Egypt, for example, uh, the, like, a good friend of the family, or even, like, an older woman who's... Um, close to you, mm -hmm. you call her auntie. Yeah, well, I mean, my family did that. I had quite a few, like, uncles who weren't really yeah. uncles, right? But yeah. But she also calls Shadan, like, sister regularly. And I, I got the sense that that was, like, not literal sister, but... This is what happens when you have, like, two white people watching a, a Turkish movie without full context of, like, the culture and stuff. Yeah, exactly. We're trying our best, though. Mm-hmm. So Shadan is ill, and, uh, you know, Guzan's trying to help her out. They hear of a mysterious boat coming to shore where everyone is dead and someone shipping boxes of dirt. But we don't see anything about that. We do see, like, porters carrying boxes of dirt, like, down the sidewalk to somewhere. To somewhere. Shadan has been sleepwalking. Um, so this is when... Guzin and Shaden's mom uh, get some doctors involved. So um, that's when we get Dr. Akif, who is Dr. Seward, um, and his mentor, Dr. Nuri, coming in, who, who's Van Helsing. During this time, Guzin gets a letter from Azmi saying, like, hey, I'm at the border in a hospital. Come, come get me, please. <laughs> come bring me home, please. Uh, so she heads out, gets Osmi. Um, they're delayed, and they keep getting letters about Shadan getting worse. And so they finally make it back just as Shadan dies. Um, now, we get to see that, yes, Dracula is attacking her. Um, but that mainly comes near the end of Shadan's death. Uh, for a lot of it, it's like, oh, is she just ill? Um, until Dracula comes back into the story. Yeah, and, and his final attack on Shadan, he also kills Shadan's mom. Yes. 
but she doesn't really have much of a, of a role in this movie, so it kind of seemed like everyone just kind of was like, oh no, the old woman died too. Huh. Yeah, well, it's because she has no novel equivalent, right? Yeah. It She exists in this story, I think, because, like, culturally to have Shadan, like a young 20-something woman living alone, would probably have been really weird. Yeah. Oh, hey, speaking of cultural things, so Guzin and Ozmi are married. Yes, instead of being fiancés. Yes. And uh, Shadan is uh, engaged to Turan. So that's Lucy to Arthur. Yeah. There's no, like, multiple bows going on. It's uh, singular monogamous relationships. Yeah, they... Dr. Akif is not, like, romantically involved with Shadan, and the there's no equivalent Quincy Morris character. Yeah. So Nuri and the other men, so Dr. Akif, Tron, and Asmi at this point, suspect vampirism at this point, um, and that Shadan has turned into a vampire. Now... Turan does need some convincing, so we get some back and forths of going to Shadan's grave. Hey, no one's here, because it's nighttime. Let's come back in the daytime. Look, she's here. Well, let's come back again in the nighttime to confront her. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, and in the meantime, um, because Asmi's here, and he can confirm that, yeah, Dracula's real and Vampires. vampire. yeah. Um, and he was shipping ten things of dirt... Uh, they go around and start um, basically destroying those uh, boxes of dirt by pouring a ton of garlic in them. Yeah, because this version doesn't have, like, the Christian background, you know, so we don't have, you know, we we do have the amulets instead of crucifixes, but, like, we don't have, like, holy water or, like, a lot of those other kinds of anti-vampire weapons. So we Like um, the, the wafers for communion. communion. So there's a lot of garlic in this movie. This is a very garlic-heavy movie. <laughs> now, just as they have found what they think are the last of the dirt boxes, uh, Asmi starts counting, and he's like, no, we're, we're missing one. Where, where could it be? And this is intercut with Guzin doing one of her last few performances. This is for uh, a fundraiser for the Red Cross. It's one of her last few performances because... Uh, She's pregnant. Yeah. Asmi's too dumb to know. She's like, hey, I'm knitting clothes for something little that will come in nine months. And he's like, who? Who's visiting? I don't understand. Because Jonathan Harker's are all dumb. Yep. They come in all shapes and sizes, but they're always dumb. Yep. Now, Guzin has finished up her routine. She's about to leave the theater when she's confronted by Dracula. And Dracula is like dance for me and she's hypnotized and uh magically transformed into um her like dance outfit and she dances for him yeah he has the um orchestra magically playing for her with nobody there yeah and he is about to attack her and that's when Ozmi, who's like hmm i should check up on guzin while we're doing all this vampire hunting yeah he comes in and he fights off dracula chases dracula back to the last box of dirt and uh, takes care of Dracula, you know, puts the, like, garlic on him, takes, like, a big stick to pin him in place, goes and gets a razor from the local gravekeeper to uh, cut off the head, and then uh, wanders back home, where Guzin and everyone else has gathered, and he's like, yeah, I found Dracula's last coffin, but don't worry, it's taken care of. The end. I'm sick of the smell of garlic. 
I mean, I would be too. <laughs> it's pretty close to the book until they get to the, like, part of, like, Dracula threatening Guzin because they don't do the whole, like, you know, he hypnotizes her into his thrall and takes her back to Romania and they have to chase after him. Like, nobody does that part. Like, yeah. <laughs> like nobody does like, that is part. Is Coppola the only version? Um, I don't think so. I think maybe Count Dracula from 1970 with Christopher Lee might do it. But there's a lot of Dracula movies from from now to then, you know? Oh, and absolutely. Like, yeah, I can't speak with uttermost certainty. And it makes sense to cut out that last bit because, like, in a film where you only have, like, so much time, mm -hmm. you kind of need to condense things and cut things out. Well, and people always do every part of, like, the Harker at Dracula's Castle thing. Like, people love to just adapt that fully. And so... Like, this film, the first full third of this mm -hmm. movie is Osmi at the castle. Yeah, and then the question you have to have is, like, okay, how much time do you give to Lucy dying, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Dracula 31, it's like, she's there and then she's not, basically. And, yeah. like, the her woman in white plotline isn't even sewed up in that movie. Here, you know, they do the thing where they, they go to her coffin and they cut off her head and, and all of that, but, like... We don't know really what happened to Lucy in the 1931 movie because they mostly focus on Dracula and Mina, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, you know, if you look at the way the book is structured, it's like Harker in Transylvania and you have Lucy being sick and being a vampire and getting killed. And then you have Dracula going after Mina and then you have Dracula going back to Transylvania. And that's like a lot to fit in a movie when your movie is an hour and a half, like these all are. Yeah. And it doesn't really, like, map onto your, like, three-act structure. Yeah, if it was, like, a four-act structure. Right. Like a play. A play makes sense for this. Exactly. And so, you know, here it's, like, Act 1, Transylvania, Act 2, Shadan, Act 3, Defeating Dracula. Right? Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention that while Asmi is at the castle, we do see Dracula scaling walls. Mm -hmm. First time that we've seen that. It's goofy as fuck. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. So this, this kind of hits, like, my big takeaway from this movie, which, or, like, my overall impression sure. of this movie, which is, like, it has kind of a high school play feeling to it. Um, but ultimately, I think it's, like, super charming for that reason. Yeah. Like, regardless of whether they can achieve what they're going for... They just go for it nonetheless, right? Like, Dracula appears out of thin air. Dracula... Is a giant bat is a at one Yeah. Point? Okay, so when Dracula turns <laughs> into a bat, like, they don't give you, like, an animated transformation to, like, a bat on, like, a string. Like they did in, like, Son of Dracula, for example. Right. They try to do all of Dracula's powers, you know, scaling the wall, everything. But when I say, like, it has that high school play feel, what I mean is, like, the sets, right? Like, the, the walls look like, you know, when it's a castle. Like, they don't go to a real castle. The castle's a set, and it's like, the feeling you get is like, that's a, a flat wall with, like, bricks painted onto it. Yeah. And the the crypts are just kind of, like, a little bit empty of stuff. And, yeah, when Dracula turns into a bat, like, they take it very literally, because they just put Atif Keptan in... Like a a bat suit, not like a Batman bat suit, but like a like like a furry costume. Yeah, right. Where he's just like a big bat, like on the windowsill and stuff. But and it looks goofy as as hell. And his fangs look goofy as hell. Him scaling the wall looks fake as shit. Like everything looks 
pretty bad, but they go for all of it. They don't, at no point does anyone say like, oh, well, we don't have the ability to really pull off this special effect in a way that's like convincing, so we just won't do it. Mm -hmm. They just go, no, we're just going to do it with what tech we have. And, and so it has that like feeling of when you are like watching like a good high school production of something and you know, there's stuff that's maybe hokey or stuff where it's like, well, you know, they don't have a fucking big Broadway budget or whatever. So whatever. And you just let it go. Because you're yeah. like, yeah, they didn't, they didn't have a lot. They're they're doing what they can with what they can, and that's kind of this movie. Yeah. Um, speaking about like what we can do with like the filmmaking tech we have, I think um, you can also see where they are picking up techniques from seeing them in imported films, like film noir, even mm-hmm. German expressionism, mm-hmm. because there are moments where it's like, oh yeah, someone saw a film noir. But then, like, outside of that scene, it doesn't necessarily continue. And there are moments where you're like, oh, yeah, they would have seen, like, Nosferatu, or at the very least, the 1931 Dracula. Like, I'm sure that they I'm, watched it. I think, I'm pretty sure they've they've seen both. Yeah. Because there are definitely, like, moments in this movie that feel like the framing, or, like, the, the pacing, or something in the scene has been taken from those versions. Or even the delivery of the lines. Yeah, yeah. You know, or or the way that they're blocked in a scene or whatever. Yeah, I think both Nosferatu and Dracula must have been seen, these filmmakers. So it's kind of interesting to see how, like, we're sitting here having seen, like, all of those movies and the development of the genre, and now this is our very first Turkish film, and they're trying to, like, as Ben put in the context setting, like, they're pumping this stuff out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's really cool to see them going like oh well like i saw this in this movie let's try to do it here and just like having that excitement or passion around mm-hmm. the craft like when you get a new hobby or something yeah and it's really cool to see i think um you can see how like you know they're going to definitely get better because what they're doing here is good because they've seen how it should be um so they can only go up, right? Um, it's really neat to see. Yeah, it's it's cool to see like a movie like this that doesn't feel like the people making it are tired of making movies like this. Yes, yeah. Um, you know, and they're they're yeah they're excited. Like in some ways, if not a high school play, the other thing this movie really reminded me of was the early movies that I would make uh, with my friend Dan, who is now a uh, cinematographer. Yeah. And, or camera operator. Yeah, he's he doesn't he wants to be a cinematographer. Um, he's certainly done it on like some low budget films, but like as you do, right? But his his regular role is more like um, you know assistant camera operator that kind of thing. But regardless, when he and I were young, um, like teens, uh, we would make our own movies, and this has that kind of feel a lot to it as well, where it's just like there's there's enthusiasm here, even if it can't really pull things off like they're doing moving camera you know they're they're doing all these things that like b movies in the states often don't bother with because it's like well no we got to shoot this whole thing in five days and move on yeah right like they took um what did you say like 49 days to shoot this. 49 days to shoot this which is like you know for a film industry where they're pumping out like 50 movies a year right at this point and and in the future it'll be like 300 like 49 days is a lot then right yeah um I totally agree that you can, like, see the enthusiasm. The hokiness where, like, you know, 
you can tell, like, okay, they didn't really have the money or they didn't really know how to do this right or whatever. There are people just smoking off screen to yeah. make it foggy. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you can tell that that's what it is, that it's cigarette smoke. The way they're doing it, because I was curious, is like, wait a minute, how can you have enough guys smoking cigarettes to, like, make it fill the room or whatever? What the person's doing is they're not off stage. They are off camera. Like, they're probably standing basically just beside the camera and, like, exhaling right in front of the lens is what they're doing. You know, so, I mean, (laughs) clever trick, but, like, you can tell they're doing that. The hokiness kind of undercuts the horror Mm -hmm. a bit. Like, it is kind of hard to take the horror of the movie seriously because of that cheap feeling. But they are going for horror here. They've got the shadows. They've got the violence. Yes. Like, they're doing the murders and shit, like, on screen, you know, which is more than you can say for, like, Bella Lugosi Dracula. <laughs> Except for Renfield's death. Renfield gets to have his, like, neck broken on camera and tossed down a flight of stairs, but, like... But at every- a distance. Yeah, everybody else, it's, like, fade to black, right? <laughs> yeah, they're going for the violence here. Um... I agree with what you're saying. At the same time, I found that it almost felt like Dracula wasn't much of a threat. Well, yeah, once it's like, well, his cape is what makes him magic. Like, what, where that comes into play in the movie's plot is, like, at the end, when he's fighting Asmi, Asmi gets his cape off of him. So then when Dracula retreats to his final coffin, he just has to, like, run down the street towards it. And Asmi's just, like, running after him. And it's, like, a little Keystone Cops-ish. Like, yeah, it's, like, uh, the climax of Third Man. Right, yeah. So, yeah, like, with that being how Dracula works in this movie, it does kind of undercut him a little. And you don't see the attacks on, like, other people. It's just on our like, main people here. So it, it's kind of like, you know, yeah, it sucks for these people, but, like, everyone else in Istanbul is probably fine. Yeah, I mean... And I was kind of hoping for more, especially because of the novel being, like, exuberant in Dracula, our, like, blood-sworn enemy against right. the uh, Turkish people, right. and just, like, let's fuck them up because of all of this, like, history... I didn't get the feeling that that was really invoked in this movie beyond the throwaway line of like, oh yeah, you know, my ancestor, Vlad the Impaler. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's clear that Dracula is Vlad in this movie, but like, yeah, it doesn't come into play in the climax. There's no like political motivation or anything here. I think the telltale sign of why that's not in here is, you know, even when a movie like this is kind of trying to like punch above its weight class, let's Mm -hmm. say. The one thing that will always tell you that a movie was made cheaply, no matter what else they do, even if their tricks are clever, is a small cast and no extras. Yeah. Right? Like, we see Guzan's, like, entire dance routines, but we don't really see, like, the audience. No, we don't see them at all. Yeah. And, like, when we're out on the streets of Istanbul, like, you know, Asmi's running after Dracula, there's not really anyone else on the streets of Istanbul. No. Um, there are there are a few, like, minor characters. There are a few, like, minor characters who have one or two lines in, in like, a scene or two, but there aren't any crowds. There's no, no big crowds here, right? So I think that's why you're not getting that sense of Dracula being a larger threat, because there are only, like, five people in Istanbul. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's what I mean with, like, you know, I was a little disappointed... But I can't really fault the movie for that. Like, yeah. I can, but I can't, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I hear you. Like, it wasn't... Doing the context setting, talking about the novel, I, I saw that you were getting really excited for, like, 
this like Turkish nationalist take on <laughs> Dracula. Um, and that's and not... what we got was like, no, here's an adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Right. Yeah, Dracula's like a gross old man, like he is in Stoker's novel. Yeah. Um, but I think this movie still brings the sex appeal with, like, Shadan to a small extent, but, like, mostly Guzan being a nightclub belly dancer with a lot of, like, I think there's, like, maybe three full dance routines here? Yeah, at least. Um, and, I mean, you get the sex appeal from Dracula as well, mainly seen when he is going after Guzan, like, the way he's like, um, I'll make you dance for me and drink you drop by drop, like, I, yeah. I, I guess, like, yeah, the sexual connotations are there, but, like, this Dracula himself is not sexy or appealing in the way that, like, Lugosi was. You he doesn't like, have the same kind of charisma. Yeah, he's not being portrayed as someone who is, like, seductive in and of himself um, outside of his hypnotism. Yeah. Right? I will say that with Guzin, like, her dance routines... It's, it's a shame I don't know more about Annie Bell, who is the actress who plays her. I really couldn't find anything other than she's not from Turkey and she didn't really speak Turkish uh, that much. So... Looking at the movie, my suspicion, because I know she was dubbed, my suspicion is that she was a dancer. And Guzin... Is Guzin a dancer in the novel, too? Um, I don't think so, but I can't say for sure. Because, like, my other thing looking at it is, like, you know, where she has these long routines and she's dressed in these skimpy costumes and they're really putting her out for sex appeal, which is, like, weird, because whenever she's not dancing... Like, she's all buttoned up and, like, is, like, a proper, you know, concerned, modest lady and stuff. Like, so I, I also had this suspicion of, like, is she, like, the producer's girlfriend? And she, like, <laughs> or, like, is she some dancer the producer really liked and wanted to get in here? No, I have a feeling that, like, you're on the money about her being a dancer and being brought in for mm -hmm. this movie to, you know, snazz it up a bit. Yeah. Um, as she would have been done in the other movies that you said yeah. that she had done. Um, but then, you know, maybe she decided to, like, move out of Turkey or stop being a dancer or whatever, and then that meant that her film career ended. Yeah, I mean, like, her dancing in this movie, it's kind of like if you did an adaptation of Dracula where, like... Fred Astaire played Jonathan Harker. Yeah. Right? Like, of course, then, like, Jonathan Harker would have, like, two or three weird tap routines in the middle of the movie because, like, why else did you get Fred Astaire? Like, that's the kind of feeling that Guzan gives off. Yeah. Speaking of the women, though, in this movie, they were kind of part of an element to this movie that I found really surprising. Okay. So, talking about the sex appeal and stuff, I found this movie to be, like, shockingly sexy and violent when you've gotten really used to the U.S. production code. <laughs> um, and one thing that really comes across strongly in this movie, and I, I don't know if this is just how it was or if this was like a point the movie's trying to make or what have you, but like, so an element of Stoker's Dracula story is like guy from the old country comes to, you know, modern England, right? Romania's a lot closer to Turkey than, than England is. Yeah. Um, but there's still that same dichotomy 
right? Like Romania in this movie, everyone's dressed in like traditional peasant garb and has their superstitions. And then Istanbul is depicted as this very modern city, right? With like neon lights and nightclubs and, you know, cars and everybody dresses in a Western style. It has very modern men, very modern women. Like uh, Guzan and Shadan like wear trousers in this movie, you know, with their sports coats. I feel like that would be even, like, a little bit out of... I don't think we've seen anything like that in an American film. Yeah, like, I know that, you know, Catherine Hepburn was wearing trousers and shit back in the 30s, but, like, within a movie itself, like, we haven't really seen that, at least not in the horror movies. And the women in this movie have, like, an independence about them. Guzan owns her own car. Like, Mm -hmm. the car that they drive around in is Guzan's, not Asmi's, you know? Yeah. Um, It was interesting to see... Like, this explicit point almost being made of, like, depicting Turkey as, like, a modern place um, with, like, you know, modern women and modern men. The outfits that we see in this movie, the hairstyles that we see in this movie, um, the degree of male gaze we see in this movie. (laughs) If this movie was in English and I just, like, happened to come across it and I had to, like, guess when it was made, I would have guessed 1960. Like, that's how yeah. far ahead of America, in terms of, like, depicting sex and violence, this movie feels. Not in, like... Actuality? Not in, like, filmmaking, you know, technique yeah. or anything. And, and not in, like, really, like, what's on screen, but, like, kind of how they're talking about things. Yeah, and how how it's all depicted. Like, you know... Guzan gets naked and gets into a hot, like, a oh, bath. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, like, Guzan, yeah. Guzan gets naked and gets into a, a bath. And it's like, you know, it's shot the way you would expect that scene to be shot in, like, an American movie from 1960, which is, like, she gets naked without us seeing anything, but we do know she's naked. And then, like, she gets into the bath, and it's a bubble bath with things being, like, strategically covered. But, like, we haven't seen anything like that in a horror movie yet from America. Yeah. Right? And I think even in 1953 in a normal American movie, that would be like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> the Bean Office would not let you get away with that. Right. Whereas, like, by 1960, you know, you've got, I think I think that would be more the norm, that kind of, like, male gazy sort of scenes that are, like, gratuitous. There's a lot of gratuitous um, <laughs> sexuality when it comes to Guzan, not just the belly dancing, but, like, we see her, like, if she is putting on or taking off her stockings... We definitely see that whole process each time. She sleeps in a strapless black nightie, which is, like, not um, practical at all. No. Uh, yeah, it's it's also interesting that only Guzan is shown this way. Shadan isn't. Guzan is also, like, because of her actress, uh, like pretty white yeah guzan has blonde hair um so i i don't know what the deal about that is if there's something going on here about like well we can get away with this because she's western or something like that like not in the sense of we can get away with showing the skin but just like that we wouldn't be able to ask a turkish actress to like show herself in the, this way i don't really know because i know that like a lot of you know, Western stereotypes about Muslim countries are not only inaccurate, but, like, through history, Muslim countries in the 20th century have, like, gone through, like, phases of being, like, more modern, more traditional, 
right? Yeah. And so I don't really know enough about the context to judge. So that's why I'm explicitly comparing it against American contemporary movies and saying, this has a lot more sex and violence in it. Yeah. It's also, I guess, a bit of a reversal from the book, because, like, usually Lucy's, like, more sexualized than Mina. Yeah, because she's a foil to Mina. Mm -hmm. You know, Lucy gets to be promiscuous, you know, she's carrying on with three suitors, whereas Mina is specifically, like, in the novel, like, you know, prim and proper Victorian woman. Yes. Um, and we see that continued in um, the 31 Dracula. You can see it pretty, ex like, very explicitly in Coppola's version. Yeah. Um, and here, like, it's not like Guzin's being promiscuous. She actually, the first time we meet her, she's coming off stage, um, and her manager, like, tries to, like, kiss her, and she has to, like, push him off, and she threatens to quit because of it. So she's very explicitly, like, not pr promiscuous. Yeah, exactly. Like, her character is still Mina's character. She just also is a nightclub dancer, and the movie's male gaze means that whenever, like, she has... Whenever they can give an excuse for her to get naked, like, they're going to give that excuse and also stick around to watch. So it's mm -hmm. it's a bit... It's gratuitous, and it's, like, a bit, um, it doesn't serve the character well, yeah. but, like, here it is. And, as I say, that certainly is, like, par for the course for, like, American horror movies, but certainly not 1953 American horror movies. Yeah. Give it a decade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of speaking again about the cultural context around this movie. Mm -hmm. So, I've I've already kind of mentioned how I was a little disappointed that there wasn't more, like of the cultural context from the book mm -hmm. in this movie. I was also surprised that there wasn't as much of like a presence of um, Islam in this movie, because when I think of Dracula, I think of all of the like Catholic things that go with it. And it's not like I was like expecting for lack of a better word, like Islamic, uh, the Islamic counterpart of, um, communion wafers or a crucifix or mm -hmm. what have you. But the movie just placed such an emphasis on garlic replacing all of those things outside of that first instance of the amulet. Yeah. It just felt very odd to me because, like, in the book, they explicitly bring up, like, they have um, copies of the Quran to protect them and, well, and things like that. But this movie felt like it was being almost purposefully non-religious. And the thing to, I guess, because we don't have a lot of cultural context for, like, 1950s Turkey, the thing to wonder is, like, is it? Because, yeah. like, or is it just, like, that's a normal... Like, because there's, there's Islamic content in here, but, like, it's not very in-your-face. Um, but, like, how in-your-face is the Christian content in a Dracula movie? Especially, like forget the Coppola movie, forget movies that come after this, like thinking about, you know, Nosferatu and the Lugosi Dracula and the like universal sequels and stuff. The Christian stuff is there, but it's not like, like, for example, like it's not tied in the movies to like a particular denomination. Mm -hmm. Like they never do communion wafer stuff in any of the movies. It's just like, here's the crucifix and like wearing a crucifix around your neck as like a rosary is like a pretty Catholic thing. Um, but it's the Romanians, the, the Orthodox Romanians, who give that rosary to Harker, right? He doesn't have one on him to start. 
Yeah. And, you know, England, of course, has... A Protestant. Uh, yeah, is is Protestant. And that fits in with the way that religion was treated in American films in the golden age of Hollywood, which is not that they were a-religious, because they were religious, but, like, the way that Christianity was handled was to be in such a way that, like, you aren't being explicitly Catholic, you aren't being explicitly, like, Episcopalian, you aren't being explicitly Lutheran, like, you're just generally Christian, because you wanted to be not offending different denominations. Um, so you're suggesting that that's what this film is doing? Yeah, I, I, I'm I, just bringing up the possibility that, like, this isn't any more or less religious than other movie versions of Dracula we've had up to now, um, even if it's way less compared to the book. I just keep thinking about, like, in the 31 Dracula, there's multiple times where Dracula is confronted with a cross. And, like, you know, you see it on Harker's chest, Van Helsing whips it out. Like, there's multiple cases. And we don't have any kind of uh, confrontation in Dracula in Istanbul unless it's with garlic. Well, that's not quite true. Um, yes, Asmi has his amulet. And I think, I, I, I'd be curious if it's the same thing in the book. Like, when you were talking about, like, them having, using the Quran, because the, the amulet he's wearing, like, does have, like, Quran verses in it. Like, that's the point, right? There is a second time when the boy patrol is confronting <laughs> um, Shadan on her way back to her That's crypt. right. I forgot. Yeah, because they, as Sarah mentioned, they kind of do, like, a rule of threes, like, fairy tale thing with her crypt, where it's like, they go at night, she's not there. And Turan's like, well, that doesn't prove anything. Medical students could have stolen her body. <laughs> and that made me start thinking about a Dracula and Body Snatchers crossover. Right. And then they go back during the day, and her body's there, and Turan's like, well, that doesn't prove anything. The medical students might have brought her back. Which is like, what? And then, yeah, and then they come back at night again to catch her coming back. Like, they stake out the tomb to catch her coming back. and they she They stake out the tomb to stake her? Right. Uh, and she comes back with a baby that she's going to eat. And again, it's just like a rolled up tea towel um, that she just drops on the ground. <laughs> I think we're supposed to think the baby's already dead because nobody does anything about it. And when she gets jumped by them, the way that they kind of trap her is they're all on like all four sides of her and each holds out an amulet. Right. Um, and Dr. Nuri has a book, mm -hmm. the Quran. Yeah. All right. That's fair. So, full disclosure, listeners, um, Ben and I watched the movie a couple days ago and are recording the second half a couple days later after the first half and everything. Uh, so that's why my memory seems to be so fuzzy. That's, yeah, it's fine. Also, like, I always find it difficult in a situation like this where, like, it's mostly the same plot as the book, but not quite. It's sometimes hard to remember those specific instances where, like, things are different. And then we have the multiple Draculas already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will say this is probably, you know, he's still an idiot, but this is probably the most active and heroic Jonathan Harker we've had yet. 
Like, if you think about, like... Um, yeah, the way Asmi just comes at Dracula with the shovel. Yeah. Like before, and- before anything, he's just exploring, and he's like, huh, what's in this casket? Oh, shit, it's Dracula. Hey, a shovel. Whack. Yeah, and Dracula Fuck. has, like, a scar from getting hit by the shovel for the rest of the movie. Yeah. And, yeah, he just, like, blasts him full of holes with his revolver because he doesn't know how to kill vampires. And, yeah, and then he goes, he's like, oh, Guzan's missing. And then he goes and, like, fist fights Dracula and chases him across town and stakes him and cuts his head off at the end, right? With and, a shaving razor. Yeah, like, like a straight razor. how long that's going to take. Oh, my God. And so... That's dedication. He's the most dedicated Harker we've had. Oh, for sure. Like, you compare that to, like, Hutter in Nosferatu, who just gets freaked out and, like, jumps out a window He's and, useless. like, leaves. And then, yeah, it doesn't do and anything And Helen else. is who saves the day, right? Right, like, he gets back to Helen... And, like, when people start, like, dropping dead in uh, the town, Hutter's not, like, saying to Helen, like, oh, shit, it's vampires, which I know are real, right? Like, he's just like, huh, welp. And Helen's the one who has to, like, find his copy of the Book of Vampire Lore and figure shit out, right? And then you have, like, Harker in the 31 version who, like, he's not the one who goes to Dracula's castle in that version, right? It's Renfield. So all Harker fucking does is stand around in, like, the house all day. Crying, Mina! Mina! And, like, being like, this is all tomfoolery. I'm gonna, like, get rid of this garlic. I don't believe you, Van Helsing. This is all silly. And then, like, at the very end of the movie, when, like, all is nearly lost, like, agrees to go with Van Helsing. And then, if you recall, Dracula and Mina go into the crypts because it's sunrise, and Van Helsing goes in and stakes Dracula. And Harker just, like finds Mina and is like, Welp like he And does... she's saved because Dracula's dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like Harker does nothing. It, uh, yeah, fucking Osmi here like is a hero. Does yeah. things. Yeah. So, you know, props to Osmi. Yeah. Now, just because he's a hero doesn't mean we're not saying this isn't horror, this is horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean like hero in like a saves the day sense, not like a set out to kill Dracula sense, right? He's not yeah. a vampire hunter. He just fell into that occupation. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, like, I think we've been pretty positive towards this movie so far, except for, like, the hokiness thing. It does have pacing issues. Yes. It feels a lot longer than it is. There's, like, a point in the movie where you're like, okay, well, we must be wrapping up here, right? And then it's, like, halfway through. Yeah. Like I said, the first third is Osmi at the Castle, which has the fault of a lot of old old Dark House movies, of let's wander around this same hallway and pretend it's a whole castle, Mm -hmm. and isn't this spooky? Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second third is Shadan dying. Mm -hmm. There's no intercutting, like, for a long time, it's like, oh, Shadan's just ill. Huh. Oh, hey, uh, a ship has come in and there's dirt boxes going places? Huh. And then, like... The second half of that third is when Guzin comes across Shadan sleepwalking into Dracula's arms. There's no real sense of, like, what the, like, countdown is on Shadan dying. Like, like she gets sick, is put in bed, and then, like, every single scene where they come to check up on her after that, I was like, okay, she's dead now. And, and then, then she, she wasn't. wasn't. It was just like, well, no change. Like... Once we're in Istanbul, the movie also does the thing that a lot of old movies, particularly old B-movies, but old movies in general, are guilty of doing, which is, like, if 
say Guzan wants to go from the theater to visit Shadan, what we're going to see is like, you know, Guzan goes to her dressing room to like take off her costume and put on her clothes. And then she walks backstage to get to the door, to walk to the back of the building, to get in her car, to drive across town, to arrive at Shadan's house where she's going to walk through the door and then walk up the stairs and then enter the bedroom to see Shadan, right? Like that thing where you just have to see every single step. And if people go back and forth between the same two places, it's not like we only get that whole process once and then it's like, okay, well, now that you know how those two spaces are related, we can speed it up. Like, no, we get, like, the whole process of people going back and forth every time, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's what I mean by, like, the people who are making this movie are only going to get better at this because they clearly, like, have an eye for the stylistic things that make good movies, like we see with the film noir, the German expressionism, lighting, everything like that. But they're still, you know, learning how to make movies, so we still get these classic errors that, you know, we saw and critiqued a lot in the 1920 movies we watched, like The Monster, for example. Yeah. I think another point against this movie is that, despite the way we described it, the climax is actually pretty weak. Yes. Because we don't... It's one of the few times in the movie where we don't see jack shit. Like, he gets to this box of earth that Dracula's in, and he, like, pries, you know, some wood off of the lid or something to make a stake. And then, like, we see him stake Dracula, but the camera's on him. We don't actually see Dracula or his reaction or anything, which is weird because we do see Shadans. Um, and then, like, he goes and he gets this fucking razor from, like, the Crypt Keeper and comes back. And we don't see anything of, like, Dracula's head being cut off. We just sort of see, like... He goes down and then it cuts to, oh, he's arriving back home. Yeah, and when he goes to cut Dracula, like, it's just, like, his arms with, like, the razor in one hand just go, like, below frame. And then, like, start sawing and that's it. And then, yeah, it cuts to him arriving at home being, like, Dracula's dead. And then, like, the last five minutes of the movie is like this very like end of a sitcom episode-esque thing with him being like, I'm so tired of all the garlic in this house. Womp, womp, womp. And so like the, the climax is a little weak after everything we've seen before that. Yeah. I still think it's a worthy adaptation of Dracula though. Yeah, I think so too. Um, if you can watch it, I recommend you watch it. It's, uh, it's really cool to see what other people do with a Dracula adaptation for sure yeah well let's move on to ranking all right where were you looking for this movie sarah well throughout this episode i've kind of noticed similarities between dracula in istanbul and the turkish film industry where it's at right now in 1953 and the silent films of america okay um, the way that many people take on different roles, like the same guys doing like producing, directing, starring, whatever. Right. The enthusiasm we've identified, and also the uh, pacing mm-hmm. issue. Um, so I was looking on the lower side of the list, uh, not like bottom, but I started looking around Avenging Conscience. Okay, what uh, number is that? 118. Ah, yeah, I see it. And I don't know why I found my way here. It just felt right. Okay. I think because, like, we talked a lot about Jungle Woman in last week's episode. um, And the way it, you know, 
crafts of film, despite being like a B-movie plot with a B-movie budget, like it really crafts that look mm -hmm. that you want of a horror movie. Yeah. And I felt like Dracula in Istanbul could probably go below that because it does a really great job of adapting Dracula, um, but it still has those hiccups along the way. So I guess you could say that my ceiling is um, Jungle Woman at 112. Right below that is the Neanderthal Man from right. last week. Right. Um, which I think is kind of interesting to compare with Dracula in Istanbul. But kind of the lowest that I would put this is Song at Midnight at 121. Because that was also like a first horror film in, um, that was China, mm -hmm. uh, Shanghai, also an adaptation, mm -hmm. um, and a pretty dang good adaptation as well. Mm. Um, now I feel like Song at Midnight didn't fall into any kind of traps of hokiness, but it's also 1937. This is 1953. There's a lot of other influences that... Dracula and Istanbul is working with. So, I don't know. I guess you could consider that my floor. So I'm looking 112 to 121. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Song at Midnight sort of has a lot of, like, long musical sections. Yeah. Which are, like, maybe equivalent to this movie's long dancing sections. Um, my range is above yours. Okay. The spot where I started was Spanish Dracula, which is at 101. Um, just because, like... I knew this wasn't as good as Nosferatu. I knew this wasn't as good as Dracula. So let's go find Spanish Dracula, see where that is. Yeah. And and to be clear to the audience, uh, we're sitting at 151 movies on the list right now, which means that the midpoint of the list now is uh, like 75, 76. Like movie number 76 on the list is Ghost of Frankenstein. Like that's sure. the midway point. Right? Sure. Yeah, okay. Um, so, Spanish Dracula is down here at 101. And I thought maybe this was better than Spanish Dracula. It's a, They're doing their own thing. They're not just, like, seeing what someone else is doing and doing it more. Yeah, I mean, Spanish Dracula certainly looks better because it's using the same sets, sets and crew and everything as, as uh, Lugosi Dracula. But also, Turkish Dracula is a better adaptation of Dracula, right? And yeah, he's, he's really going for it. Although I would say the Spanish Dracula is also really going for it. It just... In a different way. Yeah. The emphasis... Emphases are in, in different places. So I started looking above Spanish Dracula to see how high I would go. And, you know, above Spanish Dracula, you have movies like The Brute Man and, like, The Bat and, like, Cry of the Werewolf. Movies that are, like, good, but, <laughs> you know... Sure. Uh, and the highest I got was 88, which is Mystery of the Wax Museum. And I was like, Mystery of the Wax Museum, definitely better than this movie. Because the difficulty I was having with ranking this movie is, like, how much do you give it for the enthusiasm, and how much do you take away for the hokiness? Sure. Right? How much do you give to the fact that it's an accurate adaptation of Dracula? How much do you take away for the fact that, like, the pacing is really bad? Right? So, I, I thought... Maybe it's better than the Devil Doll because the Devil Doll's a weird fucking mess. <laughs> um, whereas, like Mystery of the Wax Museum, like definitely, I think was better. So my my that's my ceiling. I wouldn't go higher than Mystery of the Wax Museum. So eighty nine is the highest I would put it. And then I went okay. Well, let's consider what if it's worse than Spanish Dracula because it's hokey and on these 
cheesy sets and like has the pacing and you know all this other stuff like right so started looking below and seeing how low I would get and you know below Spanish Dracula we have a mix of stuff the sealed rooms here um Edison Frankenstein's here and I hit um Pico Valle Dama uh the 1916 Queen of Spades adaptation and I thought maybe that was better than this because mm-hmm. it is like got that like Russian silent horror vibe to it. <laughs> um, right below that is the Devil Bat at 107. And the Devil Bat is, I think, that high because the Devil Bat's really fun to watch. Yeah. But the Devil Bat is a bad movie. Yeah. Um, and I, I really thought that I would give some points to this movie because the people making this movie are trying to make a good movie. They are enthusiastic for what they are doing. They're not making schlock. And I think the Devil Bat knows that it's schlock, right? So my range ended up being um, the lowest I would put this is 107 uh, above the Devil Bat. So my range was 88 to 107. That's a big range. Yeah. Looking between our ranges is 107 to 112, which is the Devil Bat, the Unknown, the Invisible Ray, Face of Marble, the Mummy's Curse, Jungle Woman. Oh, um, Okay. Let me just throw some things at you. Okay. 108, The Unknown. For folks who don't remember, uh, all the way back to 1927, episode 20. Mm-hmm. <laughs> here in episode 163. Yeah. Um, that has uh, Lon Chaney Sr. working at a circus um, as Alonzo the Armless, um, but he actually has arms. But to woo a woman, he cuts off his arms. And gets trampled by a horse later. Yeah, it's a weird fucking movie. It's it's, weird. It's got, like... The horror of that movie is that it's got, like, weird, unpleasant elements. It's that, like, Lon Chaney's character is a horror character. But he's in, like, almost like a romantic comedy because the girl is falling in love with someone else. Yeah. So I'm thinking Dracula in Istanbul goes above and moving up. You know, let's think about The Sealed Room, for example, um, mm. because of my, like, weird thing about the silent film thing that I noticed. Right, early cinema. Or even, like, the 1910 Frankenstein, which right. is right here. Um, those films, you know, they're doing things for the first time, especially Frankenstein, um, and, like, they're doing them pretty well, but they're still, this feels rude to say, but primitive in a sort of way. Oh, for sure. Um, because it's, like shot in one room, right? The the camera's, like, standing right there. Like, stationary, I mean to say. Yeah, I think the 1920 Jekyll and Hyde would be above them if it wasn't for the fact that, like, the 1920 Jekyll and Hyde has pacing problems. Barrymore gets a little over the top in his performance, and it starts to get a little campy. Yeah, so I'm gonna say Turkish Dracula goes above this. Okay. Um, I agree with where you're coming at with Spanish Dracula, and I feel like... They both have enthusiasm, but Dracula in Istanbul is going for it in a more horror sense rather than in a more sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, the enthusiasm in Spanish Dracula is to turn up the volume on absolutely everything. Yeah. You know, so now we're in your range. Mm-hmm. Um, where I start to hesitate with some stuff is, you know, the bat is right. here. Again, early cinema, wandering around a house. Uh, also, uh, 
big giant bat in right. that Chekis Dracula. Yeah. Um, and then Ginyurina is in here. But within this range, I'm getting a little lost. So I, I want to hear a little bit more about what you think about Turkish Dracula versus Genuina and the Bat. All right. So looking around there, um, and to extend it down a little bit, we also have The Magician and then The Bat Whispers, which is the sound remake of The Bat from the same director. Um, the Bat and The Bat Whispers have a lot of creativity because West is moving forward cinematic technique in his movies, right? From the monster to the bat to the bat whispers, he's pushing things forward. Um, the movies are hokey, but, like, at the time they were made, like, the bat, like, is the version of that movie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. the old dark house, there's a murderer in here, we don't know who it is. Cat in the Canary does it way better, but, like, the bat you know, is based on the circular staircase. Like, the bat is the archetypal version of that movie. So, like, on a technique sense, I feel like, you know, Turkish Dracula should go lower. But again, it's this, like, push-pull between, like, the enthusiasm of the filmmakers and the admiration I have for them versus the, like, pure, cold, objective reasoning of, like, well, but this is a better-made movie. And the thing that makes it hard for me is that, like, Roland West, like, killed his actress girlfriend and then didn't admit it until his deathbed. Like, <laughs> um... Yeah. Hey, uh, learn about that in episode 16, I guess, when we yeah, talk about the bat. I think it... Maybe it's in the Bat Whispers episode, but... Episode 23. Um, I don't want to put this higher than Genuina. Like, looking at this range again, with, like, above that's Cry of the Werewolf, and then, like, the Vampire Bat, Supernatural, the Mummy... Um, Genuina is an interesting one to compare to, again, early cinema, whatever, but I feel like, so, I mean, Genuina has the disadvantage that we only have this, like, chopped up version of it, right? Like, I had to go and find what the fucking shit was missing just so that we could make sense of the plot summary, um, but the, like, the creativity on display in Genuina, because... There's a lot of creativity on display here in Turkish Dracula in the sense of, like, making do with what you have kind of creativity, but it is in an effort to replicate stuff that they've seen in American horror movies. Whereas, like, Genuina ain't replicating anything except for Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah. Um, so I kind of don't want to put it above Genuina. I get confused looking at the Brute Man. Because the Brute Man is definitely better made, but also sucks, and is a movie exploiting a guy's, um, like, genetic condition, right? So I just think that, like, the Bat, the Magician, the Bat Whispers, the Brute Man all have, like, these negative elements to them, whereas, like, listen, I don't actually know a whole lot about Mehmet Mutar, or Annie Bell, or a Thief Captain. I know very little. I know a little bit, and not much more. But this movie just feels maybe a bit more innocent, <laughs> other than its other than its male gaze, which like I don't know because it's 1953. The male gaze in this movie doesn't feel like fully male gaze. It, well, it just doesn't feel as like oh god, I'm so sick of this. Like it feels like yeah, all right, this is cute. Like I don't know. <laughs> It's just that, like, I'm. it's not tiresome yet. 
Yeah. And it's it's like it's It was a, like a nice surprise almost. It's it's like a harmless, playful like sexuality. I'm gonna suggest something. Okay. What do you think of below the bat but above the magician? Because the bat, as you said, is pushing certain like cinematic techniques. Um, that you can even see right in Dracula in Istanbul, but, um, I, I see where you're coming from about, like, having Genuina above. Yeah, The Magician is a weird movie, and its horror elements mostly come from a, like... Really bad trip. A, well, a weird dream sequence in the middle. Yeah. And then the ending, where Paul Wigner captures the girl, and takes him to his castle Frankenstein to do Frankenstein shit to her, right? So, I'm, I'm okay with this. Uh, okay. Let's say, coming in at the new number 96, is Dracula Istanbulda from 1953, directed by Mehmet Mutar. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we've talked about today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line there. You can also email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com with any, you know, appeals, questions, concerns. Hey, you missed this movie. We really appreciate that kind of stuff. We would not have watched this movie without Nick Harold. Mm-hmm. So thanks, Nick. Um, you can also reach out to us over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. You can also get us with our RSS feed if you subscribe and therefore listen to us on any podcasting app. If you'd like to support the show, you can help us out by leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. um, Or by simply sharing the show far and wide through social media. Or by heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month, help us keep the podcast going, pay the hosting fees, uh, do all this research that we do. Uh, although, you know, maybe I should have taken the time to, like, learn Turkish so I could start looking through some Turkish databases so I could actually find some information about these people. But <laughs> um, that might require uh, a bit more <laughs> of a contribution. Maybe the $5 or $10 levels... Uh, you want us to learn another language. You gotta pitch in a little more. Right. Uh, but those levels get regular bonus content. Uh, I'm sorry that the $10 level hasn't really seen anything exclusive in a while. Uh, I'm working on it. But we really appreciate everyone who is able to contribute at whatever level you can. Because it is wild and unprecedented time that we live in. And if you need that money for food or rent or to go towards a bail fund or, um, you know, a a charitable organization. Like, that's cool, man. We're just the horror movie podcast. Yeah. Uh, We're just here to entertain you. Don't don't worry. Yeah. uh, There's a lot of great causes to be putting your money towards right now. But we do appreciate each and every one of you who is able to support us uh, in this unprecedented time. (laughs) What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are back in America for 20th Century Fox's attempt to beat Paramount's War of the Worlds into theaters as the first color alien invasion movie with their bizarre effort, Invaders from Mars, from 1953, 
directed by William Cameron Menzies, the production designer of Gone with the Wind, and also the guy who invented the title production designer. Oh, dang. Yeah. Made up his own job. Mm-hmm. Nice. Good That's how you get a job. Yeah, exactly. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.